Well, back in 1994, Quentin Tarantino decided there was probably no stronger song to start out his blockbuster Pulp Fiction with than Dick Dale's Miserloo. It is a hell of a great tune. And we actually spent a whole segment talking about it with Gil Metavoy, whose excellent program, Crossing Continents, uh, has for so many years entertained and educated people on KDVS in Davis, California. Gil was as, as informative as always, and so we must uh, refer you to our archives for that uh, program. We are sadly returning to talk about Dick Dale, author of Miserloo, because he passed away this month. Well, I should clarify, he was the author of his version of Miserloo. It was Arabic music-inspired and young Richard Mansour, whose father was Lebanese and his mother was Polish-Belarusian, was familiar with its strains, and decided when someone asked him if there was a tune he could play using just one string, he refashioned it into this surf music classic. Dick Dale was, in fact, a surfer after his family relocated to Orange County, California in the early 60s. He wanted to make his guitar roar like a crashing wave, and I'd say he succeeded. Dick Dale would evidently play so fast that his picks would melt and his strings would snap. As he crafted his staccato-heavy style, he worked with local inventor Leo Fender to create a guitar a custom Stratocaster known as The Beast, also an amplifier known as The Showman, that could withstand his attacks. Along the way, said Dick Dale, I blew up over 48 speakers. Anyway, Dick Dale, we salute you. For more about uh, Miserloo, we refer you to our own archives at radioparallax.com. Type in either Dick Dale or Gil Metavoy. One of them will work. And uh, last week, listening to Sirius Satellite Radio, I heard a wonderful interview with the late Hal Blaine, who also left us this last month. In the 1960s and 1970s, Hal Blaine was the hardest-working drummer in show business. He was a founding member and, in fact, gave the name to The Wrecking Crew, an elite group of Los Angeles session musicians. Blaine played on 35,000 recorded tracks, including... 40 number one singles, and 150 top ten hits. It was Hal Blaine that laid down the groove on the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations, also Frank Sinatra's Strangers of the Night, Sonny and Cher's I Got You Babe, Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, and Elvis Presley's Return to Sender. He also provided that boom, ba-boom chack that opens the Ronettes' Be My Baby. Mr. McMillan? introduction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Blaine was hailed as the most recorded drummer in history. Oddly enough, few rock and pop music fans were aware of his existence. Not that he minded. Said Blaine, I was living in a gorgeous mansion with my Rolls Royce and my yacht, so who cared whether they knew my name or not? Evidently, as a youth in Hartford, Connecticut, Blaine's musical education began at the local theater where he watched concerts by jazz drummers Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. By the 1960s, he was a session player and part of producer Phil Spector's de facto house band. 
Blaine nicknamed the group the Wrecking Crew, he said, after older session players complained, oh no, these kids in their blue jeans and t-shirts are going to wreck the business. Well, in a way, I guess he did. According to The Guardian, Blaine's willingness to experiment made him a sought-after collaborator. He bashed soft drink bottles from the studio vending machine for the Beach Boys' Caroline No, and stuck a snare drum positioned next to an empty elevator shaft to create the shotgun-like explosions in Simon and Garfunkel's The Boxer. And moving from music into politics, we have two obituaries to, uh, to chronicle here. First... Birch Bayh, an Indiana farmer who became a Senate giant. When Birch Bayh of Indiana entered the U.S. Senate back in 1963, freshman lawyers were expected to pay their dues before wielding a committee gavel. But after the chair of the Subcommittee on Constitutional Amendments died that August, the liberal Democratic senator volunteered for that job, which was viewed by many as a career dead end, saying he'd pay out of his own office budget to stop the committee from being shut down. His offer was accepted, although it meant staff work had to be conducted in, out of a converted men's restroom. But Birch Bayh would use his position to craft some of the era's most important legislation. Following JFK's assassination, Bayh drafted the 25th Amendment, clarifying the presidential succession process. Bayh also later wrote the 26th Amendment, which lowered the voting age to 18 and was ratified in 1971. It was noted by some that outside of the Founding Fathers, Birch Bayh stands as the only lawmaker to have offered at least two constitutional amendments. So I guess uh, keeping alive that subcommittee on constitutional amendments was, was a good move. The obituary has noted that Birch Bayh's political prowess never quite translated into a national scale. He ran unsuccessfully for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1976 and lost out to Jimmy Carter. And then lost his Senate seat in 1980 to Republican Dan Quayle. You know, I remember election night 1980. Birch Bayh went down. Frank Church of Idaho went down. George McGovern went down in the Reagan landslide. I have to say, that was not good for the country. And finally, a political figure whose passing we should note would be that of Lyndon LaRouche. I think we made some passing mention of this earlier, but let's, let's talk about it a little greater length. Noted the week, long before Alex Jones and Infowars, there was Lyndon LaRouche, the head of a cult-like political organization. LaRouche ran for president eight times from 1976 to 2004 with campaigns full of anti-Semitism, predictions of economic doom, and conspiracy theories. Now, on Radio Parallax, we tend to take the view that we only believe in the conspiracy theories that are real, and that we're quoting John Dean. Most people tend to regard Lyndon LaRouche's quote-unquote conspiracy theories as, well, more of the tinfoil hat variety. LaRouche claimed that Queen Elizabeth II was, in fact, an international drug trafficker, and that whites invented jazz to enslave blacks. The core membership of his group never numbered more than 3,000, but LaRoucheites had an outsized impact on the political landscape. They handed out their leaders' tracks at airports and train stations across the U.S., and thousands of his devotees ran for local and national offices, often heckling and harassing their opponents. Like perhaps some other crackpots of note, as a young man, 
Lenita LaRouche moved to New York City and became active in Trotskyite groups. There he wrote rambling essays, which would abruptly switch from discussions of Plato to bel canto singing. This led many on the left to dismiss him as a crank. Well, crank he probably was, but by the time of his first presidential run, LaRouche had moved to the far right. He ordered his disciples to learn karate so they could battle communists. And he insisted his supporters hand him control of their bank accounts and sex lives. You know, a good friend of mine from my youth became a LaRoucheite somewhere along the way. And, and sometime about two decades ago, just dropped out of sight. None of us know what happened to him. LaRouche never won more than 76,000 votes for president. That was in 1984, his personal best. But four years later, he got convicted for income tax evasion, mail fraud, and drawing money from credit card accounts of elderly followers. He served five years in the federal pen and ran his 1992 presidential campaign from his cell. His cellmate, the disgraced of televangelist Jim Baker, said, to say that Lyndon was slightly paranoid would be like saying the Titanic had a bit of a leak. And you know, right now I think a lot of people are kind of down about our politics in general. So maybe it'd be good to take a look around the world. <laughs> yeah, well, we could have it worse. How about this editorial from the Washington Post? China has turned Xinjiang into a zone of repression and a frightening window into the future. The editorial board at the Post notes that at a minimum, the minority Muslim Uyghur population of Xinjiang province is about 11 million people, probably significantly higher. So consider the scope of surveillance over Uyghurs in light of a recent database leak that indicated about 2.5 million people are being tracked by cameras and other devices, generating more than 6.6 million GPS coordinates in one 24-hour period, much of it tagged with locations such as mosque and hotel. Victor Jevers, security researcher for the GDI Foundation, a nonprofit that seeks to defend Internet freedom, found the database belonging to SenseNets, a Chinese company that provides facial recognition and other monitoring systems to the police. The company had left the database unguarded but closed it off when Mr. Gebers inquired. It included records such as identification numbers, gender, nationality, addresses, birth dates, photographs, employers, and which cameras or trackers they had passed. Mr. Gebers suggests that more than a quarter of those in the database appeared to be ethnic Uyghurs, although it did also include Han Chinese and others. The data provides another glimpse in the darkening world of Xinjiang, which China's authorities have turned into a zone of repression. In addition to ubiquitous electronic and physical surveillance, an estimated 1 million Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims have been incarcerated in concentration camps, where witnesses say they are being brainwashed to wipe out their traditional culture and language. China's goal is to use surveillance technologies to suppress dissent and to predict and snuff out any challenge to the ruling Communist Party's grip on power. In Xinjiang, surveillance is part of a policy of cultural genocide. Strong words from the Post, which prompted this rebuttal editorial from China's Global Times, one which the week, by the way, titled, I know you are, but what am I? Said the Global Times, the U.S. is at it again with its outrageous slanders of Chinese governance. 
the latest State Department human rights reports, claims in almost hysterical language that China is oppressing the Uyghur Muslim population through mass detention, forced disappearance, and even torture and rape. If we wanted to sling epithets, China could describe America as the biggest battlefield in an era of peace. The U.S. also routinely supports corporate over human rights. Just look at its reaction to the apparent deadly flaw in Boeing's 737 MAX aircraft. Before finally grounding the plane, the U.S. Secretary of Transportation flew in one in an attempt to trick the public into relaxing its vigilance. Think that's true, Mr. McMillan? I don't know. I don't either. We should look that one up. As a pilot, I, I, would, I would suggest that China shouldn't get on too high a horse about its criticism of American aviation. According to the South China Morning Post, yet another jetliner in China had to be grounded after a passenger threw coins into the aircraft's engines. The custom intended to secure good luck is so elegantly self-defeating that the feedback section of New Scientist <laughs> had to rein in an impulse to elect the passenger UK Prime Minister. But uh, the man who th- admitted throwing the coins into the engine uh, may be held accountable by lucky air to the tune of about 16,000 pounds in costs. I think he's getting off light. And New Scientist also sounded off in a book review of the, the new book by James Griffiths titled The Great Firewall of China, How to Build and Control an Alternate Version of the Internet. The book notes that hundreds of millions of Chinese are on the Internet. Well, they're online anyway. China provides for its citizens its own versions of Google, Amazon, and Facebook, and frankly, we can probably see why. Magazine notes it isn't hard for anyone in China to peer over the firewall. Thousands, maybe millions of Chinese use virtual private networks, or VPNs. They create an encrypted tunnel from computers inside the blockade to networks on the outside, giving anonymous access to the wider web. But more and more, people who develop or distribute software for tunneling through the firewall are being arrested. The crackdown is largely due to China's President Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping has argued that cyberspace isn't a domain beyond the rule of law. Author Griffiths quotes John Perry Barlow, co-founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who wrote in 1996 a declaration of the independence of cyberspace. Writing at that time, Governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind, on behalf of the future. I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You have no sovereignty where we gather. You have no moral right to rule us, nor do you possess any methods of enforcement. We have true reason to fear. Well, that was then. This is now. Magazine notes that two decades on, that sounds pretty quaint. Adding rather succinctly, you know, the future was different back then. They note that in 1996, you could credibly claim the Internet should remain free from government or corporate influence. Fast forward, in an Internet without government surveillance and corporate dominance seems impossible. The Internet is no longer a libertarian's utopia if it ever was. The choice is no longer between regulation and freedom, just between who controls it. This cycles back to what we were talking about earlier. Calls for tech giants to do a better job policing their domains are have us asking if we are happier with companies to be the new arbiters of our morality rather than governments. Author Griffiths is good at calling out the hypocrisy of tech companies, including Google and Twitter, that espouse one ideology in Silicon Valley and another when talking to oppressive regimes. He writes, No company has been more shameless in its attempts to woo Beijing than Facebook. 
founder Mark Zuckerberg has posed for photos running in the Beijing smog, giving employees copies of Xi Jinping's The Governance of China, and even reportedly asked Xi to name his first child, which she declined. And according to the New York Times, Facebook has developed a tool that lets it hide posts from people's feeds in specific countries, apparently with the aim of breaking into China. Not to pick on China excessively, but as it has sort of adopted a strange hybrid of, uh, I don't know, state monopoly capitalism and ruling communist governance, curious scandals have emerged. Noted The Economist, the Chinese company Quinjiang markets miraculous herbal remedies. They describe an incident where a Chinese man was told to take his daughter off of her chemotherapy treatment at a state-run children's hospital in Beijing. Quinjiang had offered what they assured him was a powerful new cure, a drink made of huhube powder and groomwell root oil. The man later filed a lawsuit arguing the company had duped him, but the court dismissed his case for lack of evidence. That story might have ended there had not been taken up by a popular online myth-busting forum, Dingzhao Doctor. In late December, in an article that went viral, the website took aim at Quinjian, which it said had been taking in billions of yuan from annual sales. The article said the film had earned huge profits by swindling patients. It accused Quinjiang's founder and boss, Xu Yuhui, of running the company like an illegal pyramid scheme. Quinjian's salespeople... Dingzhang doctor said, made money mainly by corralling new ones to join, earning commissions on their sales, too. Now, it turns out that Quinjiang's pyramid-type recruitment method is banned in China. Companies that use it are commonly described in China as business cults. That is because gangs often ensnare job seekers into joining. Ecstatic rallies keep alive participants' illusory dreams of enrichment. Gee, that sounds so different than from Amway, doesn't it? Peace in the Economist concludes that the outcome of another recent case is especially disheartening. In December of 2017, Hong Mao Yaojui, a popular traditional tonic from Inner Mongolia that has long been billed as a cure-all for the elderly, was denounced online by a doctor as ineffective and harmful. Police jailed him for three months, despite public indignation. On his release, he apologized publicly for, quote, not thinking clearly, unquote. On China's social media, it did not go unnoticed that an evening news segment on the Quanjing arrests was followed by an ad for their tonic. Meanwhile, in neighboring Kazakhstan, the strongman that has run the country since Soviet days has stepped down, sort of. The Economist notes that once a strongman's been in power for 30 years, it's reasonable to assume he will leave office only in a coup or a coffin, but Nursultan Nazarbayev, the 78-year-old who has run Kazakhstan since 1989, is trying to find a third way. On March 19th, he took to the airwaves to announce his retirement as president of the oil-rich Central Asian country. A showman to the last, Nazarbayev signed his resignation decree on live television. The next day, the president of the Senate was sworn in to fill out the rest of his term, and he immediately ordered Astana, the vainglorious capital Mr. Nazarbayev founded, rechristened, Nur Sultan in his honor. It should be noted that Nazarbayev has special legal status in Kazakhstan. It grants him considerable post-retirement powers. The leader of the nation, which is his official title, will still chair the Security Council, which gives him direct sway over the armed forces. He also enjoys the right to intervene in policymaking for the rest of his life. He is also immune from prosecution for actions committed in office. 
His and his family assets cannot be seized. His eldest daughter, Dariga Nazarbayev, replaced the head of the Senate as he moved up and herself became chairman of the Senate, which places her, oddly enough, next in line to be president. You know, if Donald Trump read The Economist, well, if Donald Trump read, I bet he'd be fascinated by what's going on over in Kazakhstan and probably more than a bit jealous. And evidently, the former president of Thailand has said the last election was rigged. It's all BS. And it does seem that the um, the party that won last time around is the party of the military regime, which, uh, you know, rules the country via its junta. Sadly, they're still planning to hold another election, and a lot of Thais are delighted at the chance to vote. About 7 million are eligible to do so for the first time, and they say turnout may be as high as 80%. If only their voting would make a difference. Maybe it will, but we have our doubts. And how about this item? The next president of Ukraine may be a comedian. Apparently among the 40 candidates vying for office, the frontrunner is Volodymyr Zelensky, a comedian and actor best known for playing a teacher who becomes president in a popular television show called Servant of the Nation. He's now attempting to turn make-believe into reality, presenting himself as a fresh face to a population frustrated with the old elite. It's nice to know that sort of thing could happen in Ukraine, but would never, ever happen in America. As far as we know, Zelensky does not portray a billionaire on Ukrainian television. The Economist notes that what Zelensky would do with power remains something of a mystery. He says, I want to do something to change the mindset towards politicians which they described as rather unhelpful, adding that he has offered little indication of exactly what he plans to do besides vague assurances to maintain Ukraine's western course. Now, and speaking of guys who are vague on what they're going to do, what's the deal with Beto O'Rourke? By the way, his parents named him Robert. He decided to go with the Hispanic nickname Beto. My understanding is that as a boy, his mother once gave him a shopping center. Eyeing the presidency, he's evidently gushed, man, I'm just born to be it and described how when giving speeches he just lets the words get pulled out of me like some greater force. I'm sure we'll be talking more about him in the future. All right, in the seven minutes or so we have left, let's talk about some more tech stuff. There's been a lot of concern over the use and misuse of our personal information on the Internet, not the least of which might be our genetic information. There's a rather hair-raising piece in New Scientist about genetic privacy we should talk about. piece by Chelsea White notes that while your genome doesn't explicitly record your name, address, or other identifying information, the rise of consumer genetic services means these details are increasingly being linked to your DNA. Once that happens, the gene genie is out of the bottle. Yet many genetics firms and researchers continue to insist that your genome isn't personally identifiable information, despite it literally identifying you. A recent revision by U.S. ethical guidelines, for example, has continued this fiction, ignoring multiple objectives. Should we be concerned about our lack of genetic anonymity? The mistaken idea that medical information can be anonymized isn't new. Back in the 1990s, the Massachusetts Group Insurance Commission which provides health care to state employees, decided to make all medical records available for research. The state governor then, William Weld, assured the public that records would be stripped of personally identifiable information. Then, Weld fell ill. 
He visited a hospital, and a computer science graduate student at MIT took the opportunity to show him how easily identifiable his own records were. Latanya Sweeney, now the director of the privacy lab at Harvard University, used Weld's zip code, birth date, and gender to search hospital records on the day he visited. She got an exact match and sent the governor his medical records in the mail, showcasing the limitations of so-called anonymized data. In the United States, the privacy of medical data is supposedly protected under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountable Act, HIPAA, which lays out 18 identifiers that must be removed before medical data can be stored in an open database for, say, research purposes. This covers obvious things like names, addresses, health insurance account numbers. It also includes some biometric markers like fingerprints and voice patterns, but it doesn't include DNA. In other words, any DNA made available to the research community or the public in databases doesn't have to be protected. It can therefore be used without consent for research or other purposes. Law enforcement agencies have taken advantage of this, trying a kind of genomic triangulation to find the perpetrators of unsolved murders, which that part we applaud. That's why the Golden State Killer's behind bars. That case does illustrate that even if you haven't taken one of these DNA tests, parts of your DNA are out there. Researchers have shown that if you have a database with 2% of the population, then virtually everyone is traceable. That's because the DNA of even distant relatives can be linked back to you. The article notes that stripping re- records of information like names, addresses, etc. was once enough to keep it from being identifiable, but that changed 20 years ago. The article quotes Yaniv Ehrlich, chief science officer at the genetic ancestry company MyHeritage, saying there was this notion that was useful for decades that if you redact certain types of information, it becomes quite hard to trace back records. And it worked quite well, but as we got into the era of big data and large-scale internet resources, it became true that it's hard to anonymize any big data. They note that research of human subjects in the U.S. is governed by the common rule, which applies to all federally funded research. The rule is rewritten periodically to bring it in line with current ethical standards, and that was most recently done in January. But the rule book still doesn't count DNA as identifiable information. Said Ehrlich, many people wrote opinions saying that DNA is identifiable and that we should treat it this way. Instead, the new language explicitly says DNA isn't identifiable. This is something we need to keep our eyes on. And in the minute or so we have left, we do not have time to fully flesh out this particular story, but let's just introduce it today and come back to it. In Silicon Valley, tech moguls are seeking to double their lifespans. I thought this was something that was... Largely fiction on television program, Silicon Valley. Apparently it's real. Larry Ellison's been quoted as saying he finds mortality incomprehensible. Google's co-founders, along with Mark Zuckerberg, are also investing in ways to extend human life. Elon Musk has founded Neuralink to develop digital implants for our brains. A man named Aubrey de Grey, a regenerative medicine researcher backed by tech mogul Peter Thiel, insists that someone alive today will live to be a thousand. We think that's a really bad idea. Do we really need a thousand more years worth of Mark Zuckerberg? Look what he's managed to do in 30. Or some might say 10 or 15. I I don't know. It's not all bad, but it sure as hell isn't all good. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. 
I'm your host, Beto Everett. And yes, I feel I was born to do this radio show. We'll see you next week.